If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because the rat race doesn't need any more rats. 20 questions episode for you today, diving into the listener mailbag. As is customary on these episodes, I've pulled out 20 questions from the Side Hustle Nation community from the last few months, and we'll attempt to answer those for your benefit and listening pleasure today. This is the 12th installment of the series, so you'll find links to all the resources mentioned at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A12. Ready? Let's just jump right into it with question number one from Tom, who says, I'm a semi-retired ER doctor. I do some freelance medical writing on the side, but I'm looking for another income source, which I can do from my computer. Maybe it's writing, maybe it's a blog, maybe it's something like the guy who was making 10 grand a month with his houseplant website, but I don't know how to approach it and what would work for me. Do you have any ideas? How can I utilize my medical knowledge for a blog or podcast or affiliate marketing? So Tom, first of all, thanks so much for tuning in. The next thing is think first about the audience that you want to serve. In the medical field, I would avoid, like the plague, any sort of general medical advice blog, given the authority of the already established competition in that space, the WebMDs of the world, right? But there are a few other ideas that come to mind. One would be leaning into the specific ER experience with content like, should I go to the ER for blank? My son recently split his head open at the park, and while I didn't Google anything related to the injury, I definitely thought about it. It was a pretty gnarly gash. I think a series of articles and or videos like that might be able to pick up some traffic, especially for less urgent type of injuries where where people have some more time to make their decision. We ended up going to the ER for that cut, and I'm glad we did because he ended up getting five stitches. Other pros in the medical field have gone down the route, not of helping patients, but of helping students with admissions. For example, we've heard from uh, Ryan Gray on the podcast, who runs medicalschoolhq.net, which was largely built up from a podcast audience. And more recently, we heard from Shirag Shamasian, who runs Shamasian Consulting, largely built from SEO traffic in his case. Another angle would be to help doctors with other aspects of their lives, like the site Physician on Fire does with personal finance. So think about first, you know, what audience do you want to serve and then how could you best serve them? Question two comes from Kim. She asks, how have your attitudes about side hustling changed over the last eight years in the space? Well, Kim, lots of ways over the last eight years, but two big shifts come to mind. The first is what I'll call just a general softening of tone. I think early on, I was on the more 
aggressive side of the spectrum. Like anybody can do this if they want it bad enough. Look, make some sacrifices in your life. Isn't your freedom worth working for? And I still believe all of that. Not that I was ever the person pulling all-nighters, but whether through age or maturity or becoming a parent, that's definitely softened, right? Take your time. It'll be there tomorrow. There are different seasons of life. And I think I had a pretty narrow view that everyone else's world looked like mine, which just isn't the case at all. So a healthy dose of perspective has helped there. The second thing, and this is less a product of age or maturity, but just a factor of meeting so many incredible side hustlers is the breadth of side hustle opportunity out there. Yes, I think the show had a pretty good variety of ventures even in year one, but my view was definitely skewed toward the online side hustles. That was my background. I think I've been schooled in the ways of local business opportunities over the last several years, ones that don't rely much on keyword research, building an email list, or launching a course. Obviously, I'm still a fan of online business, and I believe they can scale more easily. They're probably easier to manage, but they're not for everyone. And showcasing both online and offline businesses, I think, has become a point of differentiation for the show. And perhaps even more exciting is when you can combine an online business skill set to an offline side hustle like we've seen on multiple different occasions. So the broad thesis of Side Hustle Nation remains the same. You can earn money outside of a day job. You can do it in a low-risk way. And I'm going to share how real people are getting it done. But yes, the tone has softened and my breadth of available options has probably expanded over the last eight years as well. Question three came in from Philip. He asked, how do bundle sales work? Why would these product creators give their work away for so little? So Philip, excellent question as I've been a customer of affiliate for and product contributor to several bundle sales over the last few years. Bundle sales, if you're not familiar, are when you'll see a bunch of digital products or resources or courses grouped together and then deeply discounted for a limited time. Like, hey, we're doing a five-day sale or a three-day launch for this thing. How these work is each product creator is essentially donating their product to the bundle. They're not getting a revenue share from the overall proceeds, or at least I didn't when I was a product creator on these. So why do they do it? Well, it's a way to grow their audience and grow their email list. It's a great fit if you have a helpful, lower-priced product that isn't necessarily your bread and butter, right? You wouldn't want to give away your flagship product as part of a bundle sale. So that's the first part. Then the product contributors and then often affiliates all promote the sale during the limited time launch period. And the end result is a much larger reach than you could have achieved from your own audience than you could have achieved on your own. And you might add hundreds of new people to your list when they go to redeem uh, your contributed product. Now, on my first bundle sale as a contributor, I made the mistake of sending bundle customers straight to Udemy with a special offer code to get the course for free without registering on Side Hustle Nation first. That was totally my bad. I didn't know what I was doing. But if you're looking to get involved with a bundle sale, Ultimate Bundles has several launches a year in a bunch of different niches. That's at ultimatebundles.com. Another side hustle opportunity is actually to organize the bundle sale yourself. Could you bring together a bunch of product creators in your niche for a limited time sale? As the organizer, you pocket the sales revenue generated in exchange for setting up the sales page, the checkout process, the affiliate program, the other nuts and bolts. And it could be a really good way to build relationships in your niche and kind of put yourself in the center of the action. So appreciate that question on bundle sales, Philip. Question four from Kenny was, 
was the table of contents plugin that you're using on your site. Well, Kenny, for me, that is now Lucky WP table of contents. You can have this automatically insert into your posts, or you can use shortcode to put it wherever you want. You can tell it which subheadings to exclude. You can change the formatting. And this was a switch for me from a plugin called Easy Table of Contents. But the main idea here is twofold. One, to give users the chance to skip to the part of the content that they're most interested in. And two, of course, to let Google index the structure or organization of your post. And again, I think the more data you can give Google about uh, what your page or content is about, the better your odds are for showing up in search results or the featured snippets. So that's Lucky WP Table of Contents free Table of Contents plugin. Question five is from Stephanie. She asks, how is the you might also like box working for you in your email newsletter in terms of boosting clicks, page views, etc.? The conventional wisdom about email is you should focus on one single idea for the reader to click on. So curious how this is working. Yes, Stephanie, you're right. That is the conventional wisdom and probably the smarter thing to do. But the extra links are something I've been playing around with the last few months. My hope was it would make the newsletter more interesting, valuable, shareable, even if the subject topic wasn't a fit, right? So I've been testing a slightly different format. So if you haven't been on the Side Hustle Nation newsletter list lately, this is uh, where at the bottom of the newsletter, I will put, uh, you might also like and include three little links and snippets. Sometimes it's internal links to Side Hustle Nation. More often it's external links to just interesting resources or articles I found. The near-term metric that I wanted to track was whether or not people would unsubscribe at a lower rate, right? Like if you're adding extra value to the newsletter, in theory, unsubscribe should go down. So far, the data suggests that's not the case. When I looked at five weeks before the change and five weeks after the change, the average unsubscribe rate for both sets of data was 0.23%. So one unsubscribe out of every 430-something recipients. Those links don't necessarily see a ton of traffic or ton of action to them. They maybe get clicked on at, you know, five to 10% at the rate of the primary, you know, call to action does, which is usually promoting the podcast episode in, in the case of my newsletter. But still, it's been actually a ton of fun to source these. And it gives me a chance to share other content that I think is compelling, other tools I think people should check out, even affiliate links. But you are totally right for direct call to action messages giving only one option is the best. So for example, I think when I was soliciting the survey responses, I didn't include the you might also like section. Same thing with sales messages. Make it super obvious, you know, what's the one thing people should do next? Question six is from Calabucus. He asked, I noticed you're using Teachable. Any particular reason? I've looked at a number of sites and couldn't really decide which was best. What do you recommend? Well, Calabucus, thanks for the question. Teachable has worked well for me so far. I chose it because that's what most of my internet friends were using at the time. I had a good relationship with the company. Fun fact, they were actually one of the first official sponsors of this podcast. So we went back a long way. We had that established relationship. On the pros side, I like how easy it is to edit the pages, to add new content, to manage student records, to process payments, see reports, all of that stuff. And There's a ton of other features that I admittedly probably haven't even touched yet. What I don't love about it, some students have reported trouble logging in. Like, it's not the most user-friendly on the front end. Like, it's kind of confusing. Like, if we create a school account and then a course account, and there's been some login issues, and sometimes it's connected to, oh, you know, I signed up with a different email, or I PayPal'd with a different email or something. 
And if you're not selling a ton of courses, the monthly fee can be a frustrating expense. You could definitely duct tape together something cheaper with uh, like a membership plugin or and combine that with unlisted YouTube videos. But it comes with some trade-offs in user experience and potentially website security if you're going to have other people creating user accounts for your WordPress site. Actually, uh, if you're cool using unlisted YouTube videos as your video hosting, because that's one of the big expense if you want private video hosting and you don't need any of the interactive elements, you could potentially just sell through a platform like Gumroad, which is free, I want to say, aside from a 5% per transaction fee plus payment processing fees, and just link the lectures from a PDF. They'll handle automated digital delivery. That would definitely be a super frugal way to do it. Now, as uh, a student in several teachable courses, it is kind of handy to have access to all of those in one place, but I wouldn't necessarily base my decision off of that. One alternative that might be worth a look is called Podia, P-O-D-I-A. Similar priced at the basic level, at the pro level, it seems to be slightly more affordable for kind of a similar feature set, and a couple friends have recommended that as well. Again, Podia, P-O-D-I-A. Question seven came in from Beth. She said, I've got the perfect idea for a directory website and want to start it as soon as possible. I just don't know what WordPress theme to use. Any ideas? Well, Beth, if this were me, I would just Google up WordPress directory themes and see which ones have the look and the functionality that you're after. On Theme Forest, for example, I found a bunch of great looking choices in the $40 to $70 range. And if you want to start for free, just add the keyword free to your search and compare those options. The good news is with any WordPress theme, directory website or not, is you can always customize it. You can always change or upgrade it later. Question eight came in from Gary. He asked, what's a typical rate for advertising on a podcast? I realize it depends on the program and listenership, but curious what insights you have here having done it yourself for several years. So Gary, it really is the wild, wild west based on what kind of audience and package you can put together. But the quote typical rates might be 15 to $20 per thousand downloads for pre-rolls. Those are the ads at the beginning of the show. And maybe 25 to $35 per thousand downloads for mid-rolls, which as you might have guessed are ads in the middle of an episode. So for example, if a podcast has 10,000 listeners and has a couple 60 second mid-roll spots per episode, if they charged a $30 CPM or cost per thousand, that would be $300 per ad spot or $600 earned for that episode when you say, oh, we got two different advertisers. And if they added a pre-roll at the beginning, maybe that brings in another couple hundred bucks. And there may be agency fees taken out of that too if an ad broker is helping you sell those spots. And obviously those can go much higher for super niche audiences. Or you may work out an affiliate or performance-based arrangement. And traditional CPM ads are just one way to go. And just one way the Side Hustle Show is monetized for a few other ideas that I've tried in the past and that other hosts have tried. Just Google Side Hustle Nation monetize a podcast and my article will pop right up. Or if you want to test my SEO, you can try monetize a podcast. I think I'm still on the first page, even if you don't include the side hustle nation part there. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? 
Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Question nine is from Melissa. She asked, what made you jump? What made you believe in yourself so much? How did failure not become an option for you? Well, Melissa, making the jump for me was still a scary move. Like, could I really cut my own paycheck? What if it flopped? Would I be able to get another job? I definitely had those doubts and those fears, but I'd also had my little side hustle going for a couple years at that time and had a decent savings cushion. It had gotten to the point where my side hustle, which was a comparison shopping site for footwear, this was back in 2008 when I quit my corporate job, if you're new to the show, that side hustle was covering my monthly expenses, but not quite to the point where it was replacing my day job salary. Still, it was a lot more fun and rewarding to work on, and I was confident with an extra 40, 50 hours a week that I was dedicating to the day job, I felt like I could get it to that salary level and beyond. And in hindsight, I'm super glad I quit when I did, because on my first day of self-employment, the business got wrecked by Google. My ad account was shut down. I lost 80% of my traffic and revenue in an instant. It took three months and thousands of dollars in development costs to get it turned back on where ultimately Google said, hey, looks like we made an error. You know, you're good to go. Had I waited even just a couple weeks to make my jump, I might have been too spooked to ever do it. The second part of Melissa's question, how did failure not become an option for you, uh, is one that I want to address because failure is always an option. It's not a great option, but it's still an option today, even though I'm constantly trying to figure out ways to hedge against it. There's this Jimmy Buffett song uh, that talks about it called If It All Falls Down. And basically it's about giving it your best shot, but you can't necessarily control the outcome. Like 
no regrets, right? And I've had dozens of failures and flops over the last 15 years. But the good news is none were life-threatening. Even when the shoe business was shut down by Google, that was kind of like worst case scenario type of stuff, but it wasn't life-threatening because of the savings cushion that I had. I think it's helpful to think about that realistic worst case scenario for yourself and set up each side hustle attempt such that there's a strong enough upside weighed against you know relatively small downside, right? Question 10 is from Max who asks, I had a question about affiliate marketing after reading your step-by-step guide. You go pretty in-depth with your example nootropics and eventually go down to a single product called MindLab Pro. Then you describe how the website you create should be about the specific product, MindLab Pro. My question is, why not make your website more general, like about the broad nootropics niche instead? Wouldn't that allow you to review a bunch of different brands instead of just one? Yes. So Max is talking about a guest post written by Michael Benkovich. If you Google Side Hustle Nation Affiliate Marketing for Beginners, you can find that full write-up. And I think long-term, Max, your approach is definitely more viable. It's more brandable. For that blog post, I think Michael was really trying to show how you could get super niche if you're just starting out and make it easier to swallow versus tackling a whole broad niche like that. But I like your model. For example, I created and sold last year a site that reviewed virtual assistant companies, and that focused on the industry as a whole rather than on one specific company. Another similar model would be Robert Brandel's website tooltester.com, which we showcased in episode 340. So rather than just reviewing Squarespace, for example, and building up a big knowledge base on that one platform, he reviewed Wix and Weebly and Webnode and a bunch of others as well. So I like that angle too. Again, I think it goes back to figuring out what audience you want to serve and how you can best help them make their decision. For question 11, Rochelle asked, what are some good potential side hustles for retirees? So Rochelle, first off, I think retirees can tackle just about any of the business models that we cover on the show and might actually bring some unique perspectives to the game. But three side hustles I'm excited about right now are drop surfacing, problem solving content on YouTube, and email newsletters. And not just for retirees, but really for anyone. Drop surfacing, especially in the home services niche, has got me excited right now. With this model, you choose a common service, like we've done examples in house cleaning, but this could be window washing, pet waste removal, mobile car detailing we've done. Then you find qualified professionals who you know want to fill out more of their schedule, and you go out and market for clients. The opportunity is that many of the existing service providers are excellent technicians. They're great at their work, but they're not necessarily great marketers or administrators. And that's where the drop servicing opportunity comes in. The second one is problem solving content for YouTube. Think about the problems or challenges that you've overcome recently. What do people ask you for help with? YouTube is an incredible answer engine if you can record the solution for others. This one is definitely a longer term play, but it exercises some creative muscles that can turn into a time-leveraged income stream over time with YouTube ads or with affiliate earnings down the road. And then the third thing, email newsletters. I specifically like the curation model where you can send out the most interesting articles that you find on a given niche topic of your choice every day, every week, however frequent you want to do that. These are super valuable for subscribers because you're helping cut through the clutter You can become part of their daily or weekly routine. Platforms like Substack and SendFox are making it easier than ever to start 
as your subscriber base grows. You can monetize with ads, with affiliate offers, with products or services of your own, maybe even add a premium paid subscription. Those are some side hustles that I'm excited about right now for retirees and for non-retirees alike. Question 12 is from Natalie. My question is about the possible legal liability of a review website. Have you or any of your clients with review blogs come across any liability that they wished they'd prepared for? So Natalie, uh, of course, disclosures up front, I'm not a lawyer, nor, nor do I play one on the internet. But my understanding is that honest, factual reviews, and probably factual is the underlying statement there, should be protected under free speech. Now, that's not always going to stop companies from threatening legal action to remove that content. But in the nine and a half years of running the virtual assistant assistant review site, that happened zero times. One potential way to protect yourself for peace of mind is investing in what's called media liability insurance. This is going to afford some level of protection for the content that you post online. It's not a blank check to go just slander people, but it may provide some sort of protection. Chubb, uh, C-H-U-B-B, seems to be the go-to supplier for that type of policy. I recently bought a slightly different policy. It was called Cyber Liability that included underneath that policy some amount of media liability coverage. And I got mine through Zeguro, Z-E-G-U-R-O.com. But in any case, probably not a necessary expense when you're just starting out. In question 13, Beth said, I came across a company called Skimlinks and wondering your opinion on it. I've just been using Amazon links so far. So Skimlinks is definitely a legit company, definitely a useful tool for bloggers, website owners. How it works is you install a little script on your site and then they'll automatically turn your outbound links into affiliate links where available if they have that in their network. The drawback is they take a percentage of all your commissions, so you could often earn a higher percentage by working directly with the brands or through their affiliate program on one of the affiliate networks like ShareSale, Impact, Rakuten, Commission Junction, places like that. I've used a similar service called Viglink, V-I-G link in the past where I was having trouble with the direct affiliate program. I couldn't get the links to work or I couldn't get approved for the program for whatever reason. And sometimes because those services, Viglink, Skimlinks, they're driving a lot of revenue. They're kind of like the super affiliate in this case. Sometimes they've actually negotiated higher commissions, which could offset their fee. But definitely a legit operator, just if you have limited affiliate relationships, maybe it's only Amazon, you're probably better off just pulling those links directly. If you talk about every product under the sun and you don't want to be bothered by applying to 100 different affiliate programs, then yeah, this is where that probably makes the most sense. Isaiah in question 14 asked, Nick, do you still suggest putting your books on Kindle Unlimited or KDP Select? We talked about this a little bit in last week's episode with children's author Matt Ralph, who wholeheartedly recommended KDP Select or Kindle Unlimited for authors. In fact, he mentioned earning thousands of dollars in bonuses by being among the most read books in his category, which I didn't know about. I thought that was awesome in exchange for granting Amazon exclusive distribution rights to the digital version of your book. They give you a few promotional tools to help you sell more copies. Chief among those is the free days promotional tool, which you can set your book to be free for up to five days every 90 days of your KDP select term. That can be a great way to drum up interest if you don't have a big audience to begin with. But like other platforms, it's still kind of on you to get the marketing flywheel spinning. I mean, just setting the price to free isn't going to be enough for people to find it in the Amazon jungle, so to speak. 
Now, here's my take. The people that I see doing the best with Kindle Unlimited are the authors who are cranking out a ton of books. Think about page-turning fiction, thrillers, romance, because if you think about the types of people who are likely to subscribe to Kindle Unlimited, which is like Netflix for books, unlimited books for a flat monthly fee, the people who are going to get the most value out of that are voracious readers who are just plowing through series after series. For nonfiction, maybe after the initial launch period, I'm not sure that it makes sense. I've taken most of my titles off KDP Select over the last few years under the theory that if somebody really wants to read it, they can still buy it. And my royalty is likely going to be higher from a sale than it is for whatever the uh, latest Kindle normalized page read algorithm from Amazon is. So that's my take on Kindle Unlimited these days. Question 15 is from Marianne. She says, I want to register a new side hustle project while spending the least amount of money since I'm not making any money from the business yet. Makes total sense, Marianne. Can I be my own registered agent? Legal Zoom wants to appoint someone for me. So Marianne, again, not an attorney and the rules may vary state to state, but I'm pretty sure I was my own registered agent for the first 10 plus years in business. The biggest advantage of appointing a different registered agent in my understanding, is keeping your name, your address out of the public record because new corporate filings tend to find their way onto the internet, kind of like domain registrations, where if you've ever not checked the private registration box, I'm sure you've gotten the solicitations from all these you know, friendly web development companies that want to help you out with your new website. So the advantage, in my understanding, is just keeping your information a little more private. Question 16 is from Paul. He says, my side hustle is making digital treasure hunts around cities. We're in 11 cities now, but we started out with one local brand. As we've grown, we've just duplicated a template and a lot of content across new localized domain names. My question is, now with 11 domains, do we have to work 11 times as hard to rank? Is it worthwhile to consolidate? So first off, Paul, what a cool idea. I would love to know more about digital treasure hunts, how they work, how you've marketed them. Second, I think you're right on the domain dilemma. My vote would be to consolidate. I know that's probably a pain in the butt to do at this point, but I think it's going to be easier to manage in the long run. For example, you could have, and I'm making up these URLs, you could have digitaltreasurehunt.com slash city name for all the local spots in which you operate, rather than building out a separate digitaltreasurehuntcitynamecom for each location. And some reasoning behind that is, number one, it seems to be the standard in kind of the activities and events space. Like we've taken tours from Sandemans, Sandemans New Europe. So they're at neweuropetours.eu. And they've got all their cities listed on that primary domain rather than building out a separate site for Amsterdam, for Rome, for Prague. You know, The second thing is, I think it's going to be easier to build domain authority for one parent brand rather than 11 smaller sites. I don't think the content that you write under one locality would necessarily benefit another, but links to one would certainly help improve the overall link profile, the overall authority and visibility of the domain as a whole. Question 17 is from Nancy. She says, which is better? Should I write a book or start a service business when I'm just getting started? So Nancy, short answer, service business, hands down. Look, you can start with the skills you already have. You can start earning quickly. More side hustle show guests have started with a service-based business than any other model. The longer answer is, I still like publishing. Even if monetarily speaking, it's not the best return on investment for my time. It's just something that I like to do. And I think there are some intangible benefits 
that come from being an author, mainly perceived authority in the eyes of potential customers, sponsors, partners, and the media. But I wouldn't prioritize it early on. Think of a book project like any other initiative that you take on in life and in business and ask yourself, why is it important to you? If it's just something you've always wanted to do, go for it. If you're thinking it's going to be a great business card for you, go for it. If you're thinking you're going to make a ton in author royalties, I'd probably go back to the drawing board. Question 18 came in from Joseph. He asks, how much is enough to retire at 35? The standard fire movement answer, that's uh, financial independence, retire early, is 25 times your annual expenses. So if you spend $40,000 a year, you need to have a million invested, not counting any home equity. And while that's a great target to shoot for, it's certainly better than you know, blindly spending and saving and thinking of retirement as an arbitrary age rather than a solvable math problem, there are a lot of other factors to consider here. The biggest of those is that your future expenses are unknowable and possibly unpredictable. And at 35, you've hopefully got a long future of those expenses ahead of you. So if you're going the fire route, I would probably err on the side of caution, either with a bigger nest egg or a lower assumed safe withdrawal rate. Just because, I mean, you'd hate to be running out of money at 60, 70, 80, and now you're 30, 40, 50 years out of the workforce, and it's going to be problematic. And if the prospect of amassing a huge portfolio of so-called paper assets, bonds, stocks, ETFs, that kind of stuff, if that's daunting or unappetizing to you, that's only one of the three common paths to early retirement or early financial independence. The other two paths that you see most often are real estate and entrepreneurship. On the real estate side, we've heard from guests like Chad Carson and Dustin Heiner, who achieved their financial independence decades before traditional retirement age, thanks to their respective cash-flowing rental properties. And the entrepreneurship path is probably the path you're most familiar with as a listener of this show. That was the path that let me quit my job at 25. Yes, I actually own the domain retiredat25.com, purchased long before the fire movement was even a thing. And of course, I still had to work, but it was work that I enjoyed most of the time. And it was work that I was in control of my own destiny. Again, most of the time, subject to the whims of Google in the example we talked about earlier. Those are the three most common paths to financial independence. The uh, paper assets path, real estate path, and the entrepreneurship path. And you can mix and match to cover your expenses once you stop working. There's no rule that says you have to completely stay in one lane. So the bigger piece of the equation is, okay, what does your cash flow picture look like? How are you going to cover your monthly expenses? And how confident are you that that is going to last you for the rest of your days? Question 19 was, what side hustles or gigs grew the most in the last year? So obviously 2020 coming into 2021 was a year unlike any that we'd ever seen before. The gigs that grew the most, at least the ones that I had visibility to in the Side Hustle Nation community, were delivery services, online teaching, and the mobile notary loan signing business. So I saw a report last spring that Instacart onboarded 300,000 new drivers. And while people are venturing out to shop more now, a lot of other people are hooked on the convenience of having essentials dropped off at their door. So delivery gigs have been huge over the last 12 months. Online teaching. So we saw platforms like OutSchool grow exponentially as the world turned to remote learning. OutSchool, uh, we did an episode on this recently, allows you to create your own 
small group classes on any subject for kids 5 to 18. Typical rates would be, you know, 12 to $20 per student per hour, of which our school takes, I think, 30%. We did an interview with Jade Weatherington in episode 442, who reported earning over 10 grand a month from her series of writing classes. Definitely recommend checking out that episode. And the notary gig, the loan signing gig, continues to be one of these uh, side hustles that comes up over and over again in the community with low interest rates. There's been lots of refinancing business. Real estate is surging throughout the country. I think there's lots of demand and lots of work in this space. You can check out, we did a couple episodes on the uh, mobile notary loan signing business, which I'll uh, link up for you in the show notes for this episode at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A12. Question 20, the last question of this round came in from Max. He said, I recently started building a community and I realized it's not as easy as it sounds. There's this inherent paradox. You need a community to build a community. The value comes from lots and lots of engaged members. It is a chicken and the egg problem. I mean, in the beginning, you are the community. People join because of you. Any questions to accelerate the process, Max asked. So Max, I think you're on the right track where there's a lot of you making personal invites, people to join, a lot of you starting conversations, a lot of you tagging other people who might be able to answer questions, and a lot of you making new community members feel welcome and feel at home, all of that kind of stuff. One of the most important things that you can do early on is to try and set the tone or the, you know, quote, culture of the group as far as what kind of content is and is not allowed. That's probably been the biggest challenge as the Side Hustle Nation community has grown, where it started, like you mentioned, as a personal extension of the blog and the podcast. And now it attracts people from outside that ecosystem. And it's my job to introduce them to that content while also providing the same helpful, supportive, positive community that's been there all along. Now, as far as community growth strategies, I've got two that I've seen work really well. The first is to Tap into Facebook as a search engine, assuming you're building on Facebook. The growth of the Side Hustle Nation Facebook group accelerated when I changed the name from SH Nation to Side Hustle Nation. And now it shows up pretty prominently when anyone searches Side Hustle on Facebook. It's a pretty popular keyword on a pretty major search engine. So consider the name of your group and what people might be looking for to find you. I know this was a huge growth driver for Abby Ashley and her group, Virtual Assistant Savvies. Same idea. Someone types in virtual assistant, they find her group. Now they're part of her world. Nate Dodson mentioned the same thing with his microgreens farmer business. Someone searches microgreens or microgreens farming, they're likely to find his group. And in both cases, those serve as kind of a top of the funnel discovery channel. Strategy number two, which is one of my all-time favorites, comes from Tiffany the Budgetnista Aliche from episode 179. At that time, she was running these 30-day personal finance boot camps called the Live Richer Challenge. And you know what the first assignment was? Find an accountability partner and get them to join along with you for this journey. I thought that was such a cool and smart idea. How do I turn one customer into two? Well, ask for it up front. I love it. That concludes this round of 20 questions. You will find links to all the resources mentioned at Side Hustle Nation dot com slash Q and a 12. Big thank you to everyone who submitted topics for this episode. That is it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Seriously, whether it is your first time or your 451st, thank you. It means the world to me that you take some time out of your day to listen to this. If you found this information or any other episode helpful, do me a favor, share it with a friend. That would be 
a huge help in spreading the word and helping more people improve their financial well-being through entrepreneurship. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.